0: Welcome to another edition of the Silver and Black Pridecast. As always, this is Levi Damien, and I'm joined by my pal, Tyler Smith, a.k.a. Raider Domus. And this this time we're going to do what we've done a couple of times before. We're going to do a mailbag. You guys submitted your questions in the comments. And we'll see if we can answer them to your satisfaction. So I will ask the first question for Tyler. The first one comes from R.D. rdresai 711. Um, they ask if the linebackers suck again this year, who looks to be the best inside linebacker draft candidate in 2020? Yes, we're already on to 2020. What do you say, Tyler?
1: Well, stop me if you heard this one before, but the best middle linebacker in the 2020 draft is going to be out of Alabama again. His name is Dylan Moses, and he was a top recruit out of Florida a couple of years ago out of high school. He's a genuine five-star guy. He can play inside linebacker or outside linebacker, uh, but at Alabama, he's sort of settled in that middle linebacker role that so many Alabama legends have played. think somebody like D'Amico Ryans. He's sort of like that. He's about six foot two, and he's 234 pounds, and he runs a 4'4", so he's like your prototypical ideal middle linebacker. Uh, he sort of, if you look at this year's draft, he would be a mixture of Devin Bush and Devin White put together, and he compares favorably to both of those guys he, with his ability to stop the run. He's got tremendous sideline-to-sideline side speed. So if you need a man in the middle next year, that's the guy that you want to pick, and I i suspect he'll be a top-10 guy. Uh, and if the Raiders happen to get a top-10 pick, well, he might be one of the dudes that they would target in that role. Uh, um,
0: I don't know. I just... I don't know about you, but I just don't trust linebackers out of Alabama, specifically inside linebackers. But
1: uh, Well, not anymore after the Rolando McClain debacle, but but Dylan Moses seems like he's a pretty squeaky clean guy, and he, he would fit the bill if you need a middle linebacker. He can pretty much do it all.
0: All right. Well, well not just Rolando McClain, but uh, anyway. So, uh, all right. What do you got?
1: All right. So, the first question for you uh from Raider 208 and he asks what is the biggest disappointment in this in this year's draft. Ah, all right. Well,
0: we kind of touched on this uh when in our you know, post draft pod and also probably a couple times on the site, but uh I'll I'll field this one anyway. Well, for me I I I thought that Josh Jacobs was the biggest disappointment, and that's because uh, for a few reasons. First of all, the next two guys that came off the board, Marquise Brown and Montez Sweat, I thought would have been a better pick at twenty fourth. Um, if you're, I don't see why they were dead set on Josh Jacobs. I don't see why uh, when when Mayock was talking about having to to keep G, um, Gruden from trading up to get Josh Jacobs that he was that that like an absolute necessity. There were some other decent running backs in this class that they could have gotten had they not gotten Jacobs or they possibly could have gotten Jacobs later. I just didn't really see um, running back the position running back being that must have much of a, like a first round necessity. I mean, I maybe for this team for sure. They needed a starting running back, but just the position in general is just not one that's um, unless you're seeing you know, Ezekiel Elliott, Saquon Barkley type of guys is just not one of those positions you value as a first round, um, position anymore. And so I would have liked to have seen them wait to the second round, at least to, uh, to really address the running back position, or maybe at least the 27th pick, whatever. Um, that, so that one was a bit of a disappointment for me. Um, if you want to go a little bit farther in the draft, it's hard to say that, You know, picks later in the draft are disappointment per se, because they are lower round picks. But the Isaiah Johnson pick, I I just didn't see the point in doubling up at corner. I I was, I didn't see why they made it made cornerback a priority in the first place necessarily. I thought it was, I think it's the deepest position on the team Um, to go after um, Johnson at that point. He seems like he's just kind of like a raw size, speed guy. Um, basically he's got all the makings of a special teamer and the fourth round, like a middle of the fourth round, it seems like a little bit high to be looking at special teams, um, already. So, you know, he's like a converted wide receiver. Um, so I guess he's got the, they, you know, that whole upside thing, which usually just means that they don't have, have it right now. And they just kind of project them higher. But, um, those are the, I would say those are the two picks for me that, uh, were most disappointing did you have a, any uh guys that were any different uh, opinion on the biggest appointment, disappointment yeah
1: the thing the thing that really struck me uh in the first round is, as a bit of a disappointment was the jonathan abram pick not that i disliked jonathan abram as a prospect cuz i really really like him a lot uh it's just what i felt it meant for carl joseph a guy i've, I've really grown to like as a raider um i felt that abram's game and joseph's game were, were fairly similar as were their measurables and I, and I thought it meant the raiders did not have a whole lot of trust in carl joseph and as it turned out they decided not to pick up his fifth year option so maybe we go that route um but if carl joseph shows out this year perhaps the two will play together in oakland but but at the time that's that's uh something that gave me quite the quite a bit of consternation
0: Yeah, it uh, seemed to me that, like, that's again, that uh, maybe waiting a little bit for safety might have been a good call, but uh, they really liked Abram. They took him there. And and I'm not completely on board. I've kind of said that I think that Abram and Joseph can coexist. I I think uh, they are similar in some ways, but they're different in. In one major way, uh, Abram is a pure, strong safety. And I think Carl Joseph is a better free safety and they have a lot of similarities, but that, those are the two things that, those are the two glaring things that I see. I think, uh, Carl Joseph is better, uh, in a deep part of the field as a, as a free safety. And I, and, uh, Abram is, uh, is a strong safety through and through. He's a, the heat seeking missile, if you will, um, at, from the strong safety position. So, but uh, otherwise, you're right, uh, and and it could go either way. They could see they could put them on the field together and realize that that's a pretty good combination, or it could spell the end for Carl Joseph. And I I feel the same way about you. I think that I think he deserves more of a chance, especially because uh, the latter half of last season he looked pretty good. Okay, so another question for you, Tyler. I know it seemed like uh, you just answered one because you did, but that was my question. So uh, Nutty Raider L A asks draft to QB next year if team underperforms this year a good go, a good crop of QBs next year this year was suspect
1: Well that is true this year this uh, year's crop of quarterbacks was the worst I've seen since the Geno Smith draft uh, and next year is going to be a lot better uh, As far as replacing Carr goes, that kind of depends on why the team underperformed uh, with him this year was there a rash of injuries was there some bad luck and a bunch of close losses Did the coaching suck? Or was it that Derek Carr just did not play well enough, even with all the weapons at his disposal that the Raiders got for him this year? I mean, this is a guy who's set up for success, as well as any quarterback I can think of in the league this year. And the scenario in which the Raiders are bad because Carr sucks is the least likely one to me. Uh, And if that turns out to be the case, and Carr is just terrible, even with as good as the Raiders' offense looks on paper right now, then yeah, you get a new guy, and you go to Las Vegas with your new guy. Uh, if Carr does suck, the Raiders will have another top-five pick, and they can get one of any number of hot shot quarterbacks, like Tua Tagliavoa from Alabama, Jake Fromm from Georgia, Justin Herbert from Oregon, Jacob Eason, who's at Washington now, uh, and, and any, any number of guys like that. But hopefully it doesn't come to that.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I don't – it would be I hard-pressed that if the Raiders were in the top-five again next year, that Derek Carr under – performing didn't have something to do with it I mean obviously you always have to think well injuries could always be a factor but barring injuries you know you always have that disclaimer barring injuries you'd have to think that if they're in the top five uh, and even if Derek Carr had decent stats um, a good quarterback a a quarterback who is your franchise guy should be able to carry you to more than well that would be probably about five wins if they were in the top five and so you'd have to think if they were up there, that would mean that they'd be going after a quarterback gruden looking to uh bring in his guy type of deal. That's 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 my where I stand on that. But that's not my question, so I'm stepping on your toes. So you go ahead.
1: <laughs> All <laughs> right. Well, so the next question for you, sir, is Black Hole Dog asks, What will the Raiders do with their remaining cap money?
0: Hmm. Well, black hole dog. Won't you come anyway? Um, yeah, I know that's not the actual name of that song, but uh, I had to. Well, I what I think they'll do with the remaining cap money is nothing. Well, uh, they will come nowhere close to spending it all right now. They have 29 million you figure. Uh, what I figured earlier this offseason, uh, they're bad about you got to set aside about eight million for the rookie pool. Um, I know the numbers said that it was something like 13 and a half million at one point in rookie pool, but you have to factor in um, all the lower salaries that get bumped out of the top 51. And so when you really whittle it down, um, it's around 8 million. Um, So you're looking at over 20 million remaining and there just aren't enough like guys to spend money on out there remaining in, in free agency to spend that kind of money but if they're going to spend any decent chunks of it, probably guard would be where they could look. I mean, obviously, the other day they were looking at Richie Incognito, so they're clearly looking to bring in somebody at the to compete at that left guard position. And they, and you know, even Incognito being the uh, kind of a problem child that he is, and the possibility that he could be suspended for a few games this season. He's still not going to be – he's not going to be a bottom-tier guy. He's going he's gonna to be a few million for probably on a one-year deal. Um, uh, or, I mean, another guy I, – I, I don't understand why they're not looking at a guy like Andy, Andy Levitra. He's still out there. He's 32. I mean, you get – some offensive linemen can play well into their 30s. You know, you could certainly get a year out of him for sure. And he—he probably, you know, I wouldn't doubt if he cost maybe three or four million for the season, bringing him in. Um, but if not guard, um, running back, maybe. I mean, they when they lost uh, um, Isaiah Crowell, they they signed Doug Martin back, but he was Doug Martin was cheap last year. He's cheap again. I don't, I don't think that that means they're they're set at the running back position. I could definitely see them bringing another guy in there and just letting the cream rise to the top. Uh, Jay Ajayis out there. I mean, he wouldn't be he wouldn't be cheap. He he'd probably eat up a decent chunk, maybe three or four million. Um, and hey, I wouldn't rule out Marshawn Lynch just yet. They uh, he said that recently that he would uh, he would want to come back to the Raiders if they'd have him. So if they'd have him. He's, he, he's at least probably a $4 million guy, maybe, you know, and uh, so I, those are the two main positions and then you can you know, like, kind of outlier like Jamie Collins, who was a cap casualty this uh, off season. He's still out there. If they could, if they look to bring in another linebacker, he could be a guy that um, would worth a small chunk of money to bring in, bring him in. Otherwise they're probably just going to kind of hold on to a lot of their, Uh, cap space in case for a rainy day or something who knows in case they have an injury and they need to um, spend some money on bringing in a guy to replace their that injury last year they had some money left over when all was said and done but they didn't have anywhere near this much money so this is a bit unusual to have you know what looks like about 20 million dollars left over Um, especially when you consider they were talking about you know they had to cut the best pass rusher they just couldn't the best pass rusher in the game, they just couldn't pay him because they couldn't have him and um, Derek Carr at the same time. They're just hurting for cash. Anyway, I digress. So uh, next question for you. Kirkster asks, which Raiders rookie will make the biggest impact this year?
1: Well, I gotta go with Josh Jacobs on this one, although you could make the case for Cleveland Farrell to fill that role just because the Raiders pass rush was so bad this year, basically anything that he can give us you know over like two sacks would be a massive improvement on anybody that he replaced um but but i I'm gonna go with Jacobs Jacobs wasn't really a workhorse at Alabama that but that says more about the number of five-star running backs on the Crimson Tide in their backfield than it does about Josh Jacobs' ability to handle a heavy workload, because I'm sure he could. On nearly any other team in the entire country, Jacobs would have been a 20-carry-per-game dude. Um, but I think eventually this year he might be that for the Raiders in the, in the later weeks. if As long as he stays healthy, he can carry the rock that many times and, and get that much action. Uh, and his contributions in the passing game will be what puts him over the top as far as impact for the team, because John Gruden loves to use his backs as pass catchers out of the backfield, and Jacobs is a whiz at that. He's fantastic at it. And he can also line up in the slot if, if need be, and he has the athleticism you'd like to see from a guy like that. And he'll make people miss. Um, but the only thing he really lacks is top-end speed, but, but he's so well-rounded, um, he's going to make a huge impact as a rookie, I think.
0: Well, since you, um, I like to toss in a name here since you threw out the Raiders top two picks as being their biggest impact players, I'll throw in Hunter Renfro as a, as a, as a, you know, wild card, if you will, later in the draft, because he's a slot guy through and through the Raiders needed a slot guy. He's their guy. He's they he is their s- slot guy right now. I mean, they have Ryan Grant as well. He can he can, uh, he can play the slot, too, but uh, I see him having a pretty good impact, especially when you consider he was a fifth-round pick.
1: All right. You know, I, I do agree with you, and I think if Renfro has a big impact, it will mean uh, good things for the team. Um, basically, any any uh, contribution he can make is, is a bonus, considering uh, the tremendous amount of wide receiver talent that the Raiders have. Um, but I really do like Renfro, and I think he can make uh, quite the splash in the NFL with his particular skill set. Um, but the next next question for you, Alvedo X asks: Do the Raiders roll with what they have at defensive end with Mayo or the Elder, or do they add a crusty mentor or proven vet pass rusher?
0: Well, okay, you want a crusty vet mentor pass rusher? Well, how about Michael Johnson? Um, he is one of the few, like actual pass rushers, still out there. I mean, he's not going to he's not going to have anybody. Um, you know, shouting over the rooftops about uh, what he brings to the table, but he's got familiarity with Paul Gunther. He, uh, he played under him uh, many years in Cincinnati, some of his best years under Gunther. So he's, he's got, he's, he knows the system. He's 32 now. So he is, you know, questionable how much he has to offer, but uh, you know, he would welcome a chance to play with his old uh, defensive coordinator and bring him in on a, on a, small deal if he's, you know, still interested in uh, keeping his career going. And and that, that one just makes a lot of sense. And you can, you know, being that he's such a, you know, salty veteran, you can, a lot of these times they, they don't uh, sign really early on. They come in a little later anyway, once the team is kind of figured out what they have in some of the young guys or or if there's an injury or something like that. So usually if, if they'd had a conversation before, they're like, well, hold on, let's see what uh, I want to kind of get a good feel for what we got on the team right now. And maybe we'll, uh, we'll revisit this conversation later. So Michael Johnson's still out there. He's your, he's your crusty veteran that you could bring in. Otherwise the cover covers pretty bare. Uh, the only other guy that even comes to mind is Shane Ray, who um, actually visited the team earlier this offseason, but uh, nothing came of it. It doesn't mean something couldn't come of it, but nothing did come of it. Do you, do you think there's any? Um, do you know of any other guys out there that I'm missing?
1: Not off the top of my head. Um, I think there might be a few guys uh, cut on June 1st who might surprise us. Mm, yeah. uh, and maybe the Raiders use some of their salary cap money then. Uh, you never know who's going to get cut for salary reasons. It's it really kind of a toss-up some years you'd be like, why did they release him? You know, and he was making too much money. You know, that, that happens. So who knows?
0: Yeah. Or, you know, there's always that outside chance of there being a trade. Once another team finds out what they, what they have, they could be, you know, there could be a competition at a position where there's, they're, they're worrying that they'll have a guy who's making more money than they would like him to make as a backup. And so they shop him, in a trade and the Raiders make that trade and bring in, a bring him in to, to uh, be a starter. Who, who knows? So there's always those ones. You, those, you know, you can't really predict these things. So, and then they, like you said, they happen, they happen later. They're either June, like maybe June 1st cuts, which there aren't usually a whole lot of those, but there are also, you know, trades and, and, and such and training camp and whatnot as well. All right. Anglo Raider asks, when Mayock arrived, it appeared from the outside that Gruden was essentially hiring the nation's number one draft guru to take care of these picks he had traded for. However, it appears in the space of no time, he has become a bona fide GM. What do you think of Mayock's role, his performance and his relationship with Gruden? I feel like he already answered your question for you.
1: Well, he, he might have answered the question for me as far as he's concerned, um, but I'm a huge fan of what Mike Mayak has done in his very short time in Oakland. He's really made uh, quite the splash, and, and he seems to have the respect of, of Raider Nation and, and myself included, and, and I, I, I'm sure most people on Silver and Black Pride as well. Um, but the things you can't put a price tag on in an executive position are experience and connections. Uh, Mayock doesn't have any front office experience except for what he's doing right now, Uh, But his scouting and draft preparation are top-notch, and he has decades of experience uh, in that field that he's brought to the Raiders. Um, And his connections with agents and other front office people around the league are of huge importance. Uh, And if you want to hire a, a guy to work with a control freak like John Gruden, Mayock, who's a good friend of his, is as good a choice as you can make. His relationship with Gruden seems to be clicking very well based on what we saw from the draft and all the videos that came out afterwards just showing them you know calling up draft prospects and and calling guys that they drafted and talking and you know just the way they get along together those two guys and the way that they interact together with the guys that they've drafted it it just seems really nice um so they they certainly got a lot of the guys they targeted in the draft and they got a lot of the guys they targeted in free agency um so it seems to be going well so far there were always pretty clear signs um you know when Gruden was first hired uh, in his first year with the Raiders, there was a signs of a rift between him and Reggie McKenzie. Uh, but there's nothing been nothing but good vibes from Gruden and Mayock thus far, so everything seems to be going great. All right, so to you, Levi, Toronto Raider asks, Tom Cable always seems to have uh, or to have so much hatred. Or there, there seems to be so much hatred for our former head coach. Is he liked by his players and respected by his peers? Is he an easy target after last year, or is he one of the big problems? What do you honestly think in here? And Lavrenti, one of our commenters, followed up with his two cents. Cable seems to be the target for a lot of whining, like he is the reason guys like Osimile and Jackson got repeatedly bull rushed in the car's face the middle of last season. So, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, um, well, Lavrenti, uh, that's because he is the reason Ko and Jackson. Uh, repeatedly were bull rushed in the car's face when you take guys that were just a couple of seasons ago like the best line in football certainly the best interior line in football in a power blocking scheme and you put them in a zone blocking scheme that's gonna happen i mean you think that these guys just forgot how to play or something uh, they were dominant you had you had three pro bowlers, a pro bowl alternate and an all pro assembly being one of them. And they don't get, he doesn't get a pass for the, um, for the injuries either because they seem to follow, they seem to follow the lines that he has. And that goes back to the, the zone blocking thing. You take these big guys and you, you tell them to run around a lot more and they're more, you know, more prone to get injuries that way. There's, it's not a, it's not a, an accident that both the entire left side of that line last year had the same they both had the same knee injury and it took uh, El Semeli out and it made it, it had Miller struggling even more than he was already as a rookie and you just see it time and time again you just look at the numbers that these good lines go bad or bad when he arrives and they get better when he leaves and I don't want to I, I don't want to say that he, he's like this cancer that are, that arrives when you uh, comes to teams, but at some point you you can't you can't look at these numbers and think it's a coincidence anymore. That the that the amount of sacks that are allowed on the teams that he's in charge of the offensive line that going back to when he was the Raiders' offensive line coach before and head coach and all the years in Seattle and when he came back to uh, to Oakland last year. And if you listen to what Ko said, uh, Osemele said it, you know, on that interview the other day, where he said that that offensive line coaches have some of the biggest egos in football, and Cable is no exception. Uh, he came in and immediately, uh, the first in his first conversation with Osemele, the one of the best guards at football, an All Pro two seasons ago, and asked him, "Hey, we're thinking about drafting this guard. You had any problem moving to tackle?" Like, yeah, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. Let's take one of the best guards in football and move him to another position. I mean, when I've heard fans suggest that, it it, it makes me laugh. I mean, you just don't do that. You don't make two positions worse. That because that's what you're doing. You're making the guard position worse and the tackle position by moving a guy who's an all pro at that position someplace else. And and then after, like after a season, they trade him because they don't think he's worth ten million dollars. Why? Because he was injured for a season. I mean, and then they bra- then they, they immediately turn around and they they sign Trent Brown, make him the highest paid offensive lineman in football after one season as a as a starter in in New England, which had a pretty up and down regular season, and he played really well in the in the playoffs. But but he comes in, and they move him to right tackle. The good thing is, if Colton Miller doesn't show improvement, they can move Brown. To the left side after this season, but but after reaching for Miller in last year's draft, if if he doesn't show improvement, I don't think I don't see how Cable could survive that. And you know, not to mention Hudson's contract is up after this season. If things don't improve, he's probably going to move on as well. Uh, when they traded uh, Osemele, Hudson and Jackson were like, um, "Are they going to trade me next?" I mean, they, everybody's just kind of like on pins and needles and you shouldn't it shouldn't be that way with one of the hardest working most disciplined interior offensive lines in football uh, to just just come in and destroy it in in two seasons time is what we're talking about the possibility of happening and and, and again that's i'm not going to put that all on cable shoulders but to say that to suggest that that it isn't his fault that we're all just kind of grasping at straws here and trying to find a villain in all this is just not fair. That's the, he, he does a bear uh, a pretty significant amount of blame, and these, and these numbers you see are not a
1: coincidence. I do have a couple of thoughts on that. I have two thoughts on that, actually. Um, the, the guard in question that Cable was mentioning when he was talking to Assembly. Yes, wasn't Quentin just Nelson. Any guard, that was Quentin Nelson. I would argue that with the potentially Assembly at left tackle and Quentin Nelson at left guard, were that to ever happen, the Raiders would be much better off in that situation than they are today. However, I would also argue with my second point uh, that Tom Cable has never had any uh, prolonged success as an offensive line coach in this league to where he gets the benefit of the doubt in any way, like Lovente is giving him in the question here. Uh, So I would argue that basically everything is Tom Cable's fault.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I get what you're saying about Quentin Nelson. And I mean, uh, that's kind of all, that's almost a hindsight is 2020 situation, because I mean, they may have, he, Nelson may have been a really high, highly thought of uh, prospect, but a lot of guys are highly thought of prospects. You don't know for sure. Once they step, step on an NFL field that they're going to be as dominant. And Nelson was, I mean, that's, that's great. But, but the next guy they mentioned, if, uh, if they didn't get Quentin Nelson was, was Colton Miller. And, And I think most people would agree that taking him in the top half of the first round was a reach. And it just basically showed that whole conversation showed that they were, they were going offensive line, no matter what. I mean, they they didn't even, they didn't even, if if Quentin Nelson was their top priority, they weren't even, they weren't even thinking they had to get a tackle. They could just uh, just get the best offensive lineman and shuffle things around after that. And Colt, Colton Miller was just the next guy in line. They they were going to take an offensive line no matter what. So at least they at least they traded down from from ten. But I guess that that's been rehashed. If they traded so. down
1: to the end of the second round, it would have been more appropriate to draft him.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, most of the uh, the um, draft predictions I saw. He he did he was going second or even sometimes like third round. So it was a bit of a shocker. They they really li- liked him, and see so, you now that's the thing is you know you you have a big ego. You see something in a guy, and you don't that maybe other people don't. You and you put it on the line. So if if he's right, then salute to you, Tom Cable for for being right when other people didn't think the same way you did. But if you're wrong, and then everybody else can say, "See, we told you so." Then then you you know you that's the risk you take. All right, let's move on to the next one here. Tyrone Wheatley's mom, I'm assuming not really his mom, asks, what is reality? Follow-up question. What happens when you die?
1: This is a fantastic question. Uh, Well, Tyrone Wheatley's mom, this question is clearly a joke designed to be clever. Uh, But anyone who actually wants to know the answer to this question it's come to the right place. Because something you may not know about Rader Damus, the Great and Powerful, is that I have a degree from a seminary. I have an AA degree in Christian ministry. So I have studied philosophy and religion and pondered all the great questions of existence, uh, and quite a bit, actually. Um, and I've studied philosophy, and philosophy is just a system designed to answer certain questions about life. And the three great, great questions of philosophy, what it attempts to answer at its basic level are, what is real, what is true, and what is valuable? And this question from Tyrone Wheatley's mom only asks what is real, because that makes up what we know of as reality. But the problem with figuring out what is real is quite simply that our eyes and our senses lie to us constantly. Our brain filters out anything our eyes see that the brain doesn't want to process. And it often shows us what we expect to be there instead of what is actually there. Our eyes could be and likely are able to perceive things in a spiritual dimension, uh, but the brains of most people will steadfastly refuse to cooperate with that fact. So, what is real? Well, it's far, far more than we can ever know or actually perceive. Uh, The very same goes for what reality is. Reality is everything that exists, whether we can sense it or not, because we're just humans. Reality is not subjective, it's objective. Perception is subjective, but perception is highly flawed and unreliable. Outside of perception, reality is a mystery, and that's the reason we as humans strive to advance and learn more about the universe, about ourselves, about reality, and about everything. Many people believe that we actually live in a simulation, but if we do, it's so well-made and so convincing that knowing it exists is essentially useless information. If reality were subjective at all, if we could control it in any way, the tuck rule would have been a fumble and Tom Brady would be selling knockoff designer handbags in downtown Detroit. Now, as to the question of where do we go when we die, I believe that there is zero chance that we simply cease to exist. I believe humans have souls and spirits, and those are hardly beholden to the whims of the physical realm. I believe they continue on in some form. There are many traditions around the world, religious, philosophical, and otherwise, about an afterlife in some form, um, but others uh, emphasize reincarnation. But they all agree that we continue on. Personally, I believe in an actual heaven and an actual hell. Many people don't, I do. Though the inhabitants of heaven and hell might be not be who we imagine that they are. We might be surprised to see who gets in where. My personal idea of heaven is a great, great eternal feast, where every day we gather around the cook fires to eat lamb and beef and chicken before we head into the Great Hall to watch the Raiders kick the Chiefs' ass forever and ever. Amen. So that's my answer to that question. You have any oh. thoughts on that, Levi?
0: Um, no, I do not. That was all uh, right. I'm not sure how any other question can top that, but uh, we'll try.
1: Well, we do have one more follow up question to all that esoteric business. This one's actually about football. Uh, so Taddy808 asks, what type of year do you expect of Gary and Conley? Also, who will start opposite him? Rookie Trayvon Mullen or Daryl Worley?
0: Well, Taddy808, I expect Gary and Conley to be great. He played fantastic down the stretch. I thought he was the best defender on the, on the Raiders team the latter half of last season. Um, he had three interceptions, uh, which is... Pretty decent. It was uh, kind of his kind of his rookie season in a way because he didn't really have an actual rookie season. I think he'll approach five interceptions this this year, uh, probably over 20 passes defended. And opposite him, I expect Worley to start. They put a second-round tender on him. They definitely like him. Um, he's a very aggressive corner. They really like what he brings to the table. Uh, he, um, he got some criticism of his coverage last year, but uh, a lot of that... You really can't blame him too much for the fact that he um, that the corners were having to do what they do without any pass rush, and so if the pass rush improves, I expect him to improve, and I do expect the pass rush to improve, if only somewhat. And uh, uh, Mullen can sit behind them and learn, and and if they really like what he does, and they and he, and their best secondary is are those three they will find a way to get them on the field together. And if not, at the end of this season, if uh, if Worley balls out, he'll either get another contract uh, with the Raiders or he'll go on to, you know, pasture someplace else and get paid, paid there and Mullen will step into his spot. But it's a good problem to have when you're talking about having to decide at the end of this year between uh, Worley, if he has a really good season, or or Mullen. I know they'd probably choose Mullen because he'd be cheaper. He'd be on a rookie deal. But uh, if you had those three, Conley could move in and play the slot. Warley could probably as well. Um, so you you have three pretty pretty good um, interchangeable parts there. Uh, we uh, That's really all the questions that we were going to answer. But um, Alzado asks... X had one other question. He was asking if uh, if the Silver and Black Pride staff was at the rookie minicamp and uh, what we saw there and uh, some other stuff there. But basically, to long story short, we um, every year I'm at rookie minicamp, but this year I had to miss it for reasons I won't go into. Uh, but uh, you know, there's not a big window of not a big viewing window for rookie minicamp. Anyway, there's not a lot you can glean from it. You get a lot more from OTAs, the windows bigger, and you can also, you can really get a chance to see how the rookies are, uh, are, you know, what the, where they are in the depth chart and whatnot and where they're lining up with the, uh, with the veterans and stuff like that. So I will be at the first OTA and the second OTA and you know, the camps and stuff like that. So, um, there'll be a lot more to see there. I, he also asked, um, you know, about, uh, whether Vanderdoe's and, and Justin Ellis were, were participating in rookie mini camps. Now I'm pretty sure those pictures you saw were just, they were probably working out on the side, uh, for whatever reason, uh, maybe they're rehabbing something or just, just, you know, working out generally, but no, they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't have those guys participating in rookie mini camp with all the other rookies and first year players and whatnot. Um, and I, as far as I, as I understand it, Crowell's injury was on the field, but, uh, um, they weren't doing a lot of really active stuff, which is probably why, um, they said that it was a kind of a really freak, freak injury. And those ones often are though, when you tear Achilles and ACLs and stuff like that, a lot of times they're just, they're non-contact injuries. They're freak injuries. The, the non-contact injuries are the worst. You just like doing something that seems perfectly normal and your knee buckles and then you're done. So it's, I've seen it in person and it's not pretty. Uh, so. And I think that's. Uh, I think that pretty much wraps up our our mailbag uh, podcast. Uh, thanks again to Tyler for joining me, Levi Damon, and this. Uh, and thank you all for listening to the latest episode of the Silver and Black Pridecast.